0: So about four years ago, I um, was getting ready for a Bible study that was going to be meeting at our house and, you know, doing the the vacuuming and kind of, you know, Corey has a little checklist for me, so get the pillows right and all that. And uh, Sophia was, oh, about a year and a half, this is in 2007, and uh, she's learning new words every day. At this point, Collins knows where I'm going here. Uh, this particular afternoon, she learned to say Jesus, and I was like, "This is so awesome!" I was so excited and proud of her. And so uh, I was just uh, when everyone showed up at Bible study, I couldn't not—I couldn't wait to share the news with everybody. Um, plus, you know, I'm secretly kind of proud. Like, here I am, pastor dad, and uh, actually, I was at last year's seminary, and here's my one and a half year old. She's saying Jesus and all this stuff. So, you know, just. Parenting, we got this thing nailed. So, uh, you know, as a lot of kids do at that age, she's serving pretend tea and stuff like that and going around to everybody. And I'm like, so check this out, everybody. Sophia, what word did you learn today? And she looks at me and then she says, Dad, I want a beer? And she pours me like a pretend. <laughs> I was absolutely horrified. Plus, I mean, some of you were in that group and we were just kind of getting to know each other, Ian and Charles and you guys. So, it's just like, what? I, I, I was expecting this big moment that everyone would hear my little daughter say the Lord's name at Bible study, and she says beer. Not what I expected her to say or do at all in the least. Well, this evening we're going to look at a story that is actually pretty familiar uh, as far as the Bible goes. It's the, the baptism of Jesus, and it is recorded in all four of the gospel accounts, which is kind of a rare thing for all four gospel accounts to to have a story and, and, and agree on it like that. And um, for many of you, if you've read the Bible a few times or, or once even, uh, it could be like a real familiar story, you know, oh, yeah, Jesus was baptized, that makes sense. But as familiar as it may seem, I want to suggest to you that this story is absolutely shocking to, uh, to John the Baptist and to the original hearers. It would be as unexpected as somebody pouring, uh, pouring a beer at, at Bible study, or, or my daughter pouring a beer at Bible study. So as we look at the, at the text today, I want to do a recap to kind of set the scene. Um, last week we looked at Matthew 3, 1 through 12, and the story of John the baptizer. First, the first thing we learned was that John was preparing the way, not merely for a human Messiah, but Matthew's trying to tell us that John's preparing the way for God Himself to come visit Israel. John was preparing the way for Yahweh, the Creator of the universe, to come and establish His presence and His His good rule over the earth. The second thing we learned was that in order to prepare for Yahweh's coming, John was calling people to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And, and the interesting thing about that is that Jews in the first century did not get baptized. Uh, Gentiles would get baptized to to convert from their pagan gods and things like that to to become worshipers of Yahweh, the one true God. But but Jews didn't have to get baptized because they were born into the family of Israel. But what John was doing was actually calling everybody, Jew and Gentile, to be baptized. He's saying everybody needs to repent. And And in essence, what he's saying is that Your nationality won't save you, your gender won't save you, your social class won't save you, your morality alone even won't save you. You need God to save you. So he's calling people to turn around from the way they had been living to live a new kind of life. Third, John was all worked up. I mean, if we were to meet John today probably wouldn't be too comfortable around. him. He'd be like one of those street corner guys with the hellfire and brimstone sign saying, Repent! Um, He would make you feel uncomfortable. He might smell funny. He probably would. He lived in the wilderness and ate bugs and stuff. So um, he is all worked up. He is uh, telling even the religious leaders when they come out to meet him, I mean, this would be all the pastors in town. I mean, I would go up to John and he would say, Repent, you brood of vipers. He's calling them all of these names and insulting them. John's message was that every single person, man, woman, child, needs to repent, needs to turn around or else face the consequences of this coming God. Kind of the turn or burn idea, okay? I I hate that term, but that's, that's what John was about. That was his message. That was his expectation, is that when God showed up, something drastic was going to happen, so we need to prepare our hearts. Now, would you stand with me as we read the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm going to start in verse 11 of chapter 3 and read through 17. This is John the Baptist speaking. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is at hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather the wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus, answering, said to him, Permitted at this time, for in this way it's fitting for us to fulfill righteousness. Then he permitted him, and after being baptized, Jesus came up and immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on Him. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Father, uh, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this story. Our prayer, Holy Spirit, is that you would come and open our hearts and our minds to what you want to do in this story, what you want to tell us, and how you want to change us. Help us to be receptive and courageous to obey. Amen. You may be seated. So John is expecting one to come after him who is much greater. John baptizes with water for repentance, but one is going to come after him who's going to baptize with spirit and fire. The one coming after John would have the power to give the spirit of the living God. And by the way, only God can give the spirit of the living God. So what does that say about Jesus? All right? he's, he's, he's more than just a man. This, Jesus would also have the power to judge those who would not repent. And that's the baptism of fire. Again, only God can judge, so it's saying a lot about who Jesus is. Well, that's the expectation that John the Baptist has. He's setting this whole scene up. God himself is going to come. This one after me is mightier than I, and he is going to judge. He's going to hand out the Spirit to those who repent, and he's going to give a baptism of fire to those who don't. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And I wonder what John the Baptist was thinking What did he think was going to happen when this mightier one came? Would Jesus glow with a special light and separate the the repentant people from the non-repentant people? Was John thinking maybe the end of the world would happen when, when this mightier one would come? Would this mightier one cast out the Roman Empire from Israel? Would he establish the temple again? And the sacrificial thing. Listen to this. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. John was expecting one thing, and then he got offered make-believe beer in front of his Bible study. Completely out of left field. In fact, in Luke's gospel, we learn that later on, John the Baptist would get arrested. And he's, he's so confused. His, his expectations are so shattered because here, this, Jesus, the coming one, came and everything, and, and and yet he's probably thinking, but now I'm in prison. What's going on? I thought the world was going to change. I thought God was going to come and, and right everything that was wrong. I thought he was going to judge the wicked and baptize the righteous in, in the Holy Spirit. Why am I in prison? And so what John does is he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to check things out. He says, are you the one that we should be expecting? Or, you know, Should we wait for somebody else because this isn't working out? So John, John's expectations are shattered. Now here's Jesus getting baptized. And it makes me think of how John must have felt. You know, what's going on? This is not at all what I expected. But isn't that exactly what Jesus is like? Jesus is constantly defying our expectations. I'm, I'm actually pretty glad at that. I don't think he defies our expectations because he thinks it's fun. I think he defies our expectations because a lot of times we try and make him into our image. We try and uh, impose our expectations of what we think he ought to be like, the things that we think he ought to do, um, the way we think we ought to feel if we follow him. In fact, this story does a great job of asking us a question What do you hope God is like? What do you expect of Jesus? What do you hope he will do? What do you hope he will not do? Are you disappointed? Usually when I'm disappointed with God, I'm disappointed with my expectation of who I want God to be rather than who he really is. And the beautiful thing about this passage, I think, is it gives us a very clear glimpse of who God really is. So far, we've learned that just by the fact that Jesus comes to be baptized as a Jewish man, he's humble, extremely humble. He is identifying with all of humanity by choosing to be baptized. Remember, John has been counting on the fact that his ministry was supposed to go before this mighty one who would baptize other people in the Spirit and fire. So here, the mighty one, the baptizer of baptizers, comes, and he humbles himself to become the baptizee. John doesn't understand what's going on. In fact, he says to Jesus, I should be baptized by you, and you come to me? Well, Jesus says, Permit it at this time, for in this way it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And what does that mean, to fulfill all righteousness? This word righteousness in the Greek, dikaiosune, means to fulfill the law or to be just. I like Dallas Willard's definition. He, he's drawing on Plato here. He says that um, it's the inner quality that marks a good person. In the biblical sense, it's the inner life of obedience to God. Righteousness toiusune, the inner life that 's predisposed to obedience to God, we should pay attention to what Jesus is saying here, not only because Jesus is saying it, we should always pay attention when he does that, but we should pay attention particularly because this is the first recorded speech of, out of Jesus's mouth in all of Matthew's gospel and one of the things I you have to get used to if you hang around in treats is that I like to teach bible as I preach bible so i i just want to take us on a little tangent that i think is important There are four different authors that record the life of Jesus, right? All four tell the same exact story, and they come to the same exact conclusions about Jesus. But they tell the story from four different angles, four different perspectives, right? Um, Brian Russell here today? He's not here yet. He's coming later. You guys know Brian. He's a worship intern. He, uh, he's also the owner of Willowcraft Media, which is a wedding videography business. And it's been fun as we meet uh, on a weekly basis just to kind of hear what that business is like. And, and so what he'll do at a wedding is he'll have like maybe three or four cameras going all at the same time. They're all capturing the same event but from different angles and different uh, cinematographers are taking the shots. And he'll have hours and hours and hours of footage to edit through he'll edit all that footage choosing which parts to tell the the bride and groom and maybe they'll get a twenty minute video or thirty minute video given the same footage though the same hours of raw footage if you took four wedding videographers you're gonna get four different products four different versions of the wedding but if these four wedding videographers are any good you're going to tell at least the same things you're going to be able to know who got married, that there was a wedding, and maybe when and where it was. Okay? So the gospel writers all tell us that Jesus lived, that he did mighty did, deeds and he spoke mighty words, that he gave himself over to death for our sins, and that he rose from the grave three days later. But how each of these gospel writers crafts that story is different and unique. Usually, you can tell a lot about how a gospel writer's, you can tell a a lot about that gospel writer's focus by how they first introduce Jesus in their gospel. For example, Mark, when you read the gospel of Mark, it skips the whole birth. Like there's no angels or, you know, any announcement. Jesus apparently never got born. He's just already all grown up. And the first recorded words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark's gospel are, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark's gospel is all about what Jesus does. And it's Mark. It's marked by his constant use of this word, Euthus, which means immediately. So if you read Mark's gospel, it's always immediately this. Immediately Jesus did that. Immediately Jesus healed this person. Immediately he said that. Get the point? So Mark is maybe about what Jesus did. In John's gospel, on the other hand, the first thing the adult Jesus does, he gets baptized, and the first words out of his mouth are, He's walking. These guys are behind him. He says, "What are you seeking?" And they say, "Well, where are you staying? Where are you abiding?" And he says, "Come, you'll find out." The whole of John's gospel focuses on Jesus abiding in the Father. Mark's gospel highlights the stuff Jesus did. John's gospel highlights who Jesus is, who He abides in. Well, the first adult action of Matthew's gospel is Jesus's baptism. That's The same in all four Gospels. And it's no wonder that Jesus' first recorded words in Matthew's Gospel are permitted at this time to fulfill all righteousness. You see, dikaiosune, or righteousness, is a huge theme for Jesus, and it's a theme Matthew will continue to bring out, as we'll see in the weeks to come, especially when we get to the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Jesus' very last words in Matthew's Gospel are commissioned to his disciples to go and do what? To baptize all nations, right? Teaching them to do what? To obey all that he commanded them. That's that righteousness. Matthew's Gospel, you might say, highlights Jesus' teachings. So where does that leave us with our story? My tangent's over, by the way. So where does that leave us with our story? Well, first, Jesus gets baptized by John. First of all, because he's passionate to obey the Father. Jesus doesn't need baptism. You see, the New Testament is unified in in its account that Jesus was sinless. He doesn't need to really repent of his sin or anything like that. But Jesus wants to live rightly. He wants to embody dekaya suni. He wants to embody righteousness. So he's going to obey. He's going to get baptized because it's the right thing to do. Now, of course, there's much more going on in the story that meets our kind of 21st century eye. When Jesus is baptizing, baptized, for example, he comes out of the water, and three things happen. Heaven was opened, the spirit took on the form of a dove and came down to rest on him, and the father's voice was heard declaring his love and pleasure for Jesus. Now, we could speak for hours about this imagery, and if it's interesting to you, hit me up afterwards. I'd love to talk about it. But let's just focus on a little bit. Last week, I I pointed out that John baptizing people out in the wilderness was kind of like uh, an exodus motif. The people came through the waters when God rescued them from Egypt, and they're out in the wilderness. And the same thing, John's calling them out to the wilderness to meet with God, to, to come clean with Him, and they're coming through the waters of baptism. When God sends Moses in the Exodus story to Pharaoh to let his people go, do you know how God refers to Israel? He calls Israel his son. He calls Israel his son. God chose Israel to be his living representatives on the earth he chose them to live in righteousness and to be a blessing to the world so that all the nations would come to know God how good he is how how worthy of worship he is and that all nations would come to worship God through Israel and time after time they fail and now comes on the scene a new son with whom God is well pleased Jesus Embodies all of Israel. He fulfills all that they were supposed to be, all that they were supposed to do. He fulfills all righteousness because no human being can do it on their own. I can't, you can't, no one can. So check this out. Common Christian teaching, right, is that Jesus died on the cross vicariously for you and me. He died so that we could have eternal life. But before he died vicariously for you and I, he was baptized vicariously, even though he did nothing wrong. He didn't need to repent and be baptized. But he, in doing so, was representing all of Israel repenting, coming back to God. He was doing it vicariously for this whole nation. Jesus does what we cannot do. He does it on our behalf. That's called the good news. That's called the gospel. Amen? Jesus does what you and I cannot do in our own strength. That's good. That's good. Now, the heavens open up in in this story, and that's a clear reference to Isaiah 64.1. It's Israel calling out for God to come down to rescue them. This is the quote. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would rip them open and come down. And how does God come down? How would you expect the living God to come down to earth? Well, it might be shocking, but He comes down... As a dove, he descends as a dove, a symbol of peace mixed with power, a symbol of new creation. Think Genesis chapter one, verse two, the spirit of the Lord hovering over the waters of chaos. And it's that spirit that would create a new, but almost, I think more powerfully, the image of the dove goes back to Noah If you remember the story of Noah, it says that the people were evil in their hearts all the time. And so God judged the earth and flooded it and destroyed all the evil. There was one man who was righteous, Noah. And so he and his family and the animals get on the ark, right? And so judgment comes over the earth. Everything is wiped out. And what happens when the rains begin to cease? Noah sends a dove out. And it's the dove that comes back with news, with the olive branch. It's the dove that comes back and says, The judgment is over. The judgment has passed. New creation is about to spring up. It's a powerful, powerful image. Jesus comes out of the waters, and the sign of the dove rested on him. Friends, that means that through Jesus... We can have new life, freedom from judgment. That judgment is over, and that symbol is newness of life. The voice from heaven declares his pleasure with the Son. Jesus will be able to do what Israel could not. Jesus will do what you and I cannot. He'll fulfill all righteousness on the world's behalf. Well, enough for the background. What in the heck does that mean for you and I? Okay, whoop de doo that this, this all happened, right? Here, where's the rubber meet the road? First of all, there's a relational aspect in all of this. You know, oftentimes, for most of us actually, thinking of God as Father can be a really difficult image to hold as, as anything good. You know, maybe the image of Father brings up negative feelings. Maybe it brings up uh, instances of abuse of power. And so if you can't conceptualize God as Father and actually enjoy doing that, maybe if you can conceptualize god as jesus after all jesus says if you've seen me you've seen the father and what we see in this story is a jesus who humbles himself on our behalf maybe when you're young you could expect fire and brimstone figuratively from your father just as john the baptist expected that when jesus was to come but what we see in jesus instead is humility and mercy and good judgment so if you want to know what the father's really like take a good hard look at jesus second is the sacrament of baptism itself now dale bruner commentator and scholar actually he's over uh, in spokane help me to categorize these two aspects so this is not original to me but first there's the the ethical side of baptism jesus is baptized out of obedience to the father jesus calls his disciples you and i to be baptized and he calls us to make more disciples and to baptize them so there's this ordinance of baptism that where you know jesus did it and, and he calls us to do the same thing on a very simple level If we have faith in Jesus to save us, we should trust him to be baptized. That's very simple. But Jesus doesn't just get baptized so he can tell us to get baptized. You know what I mean? He leads us to the second aspect of baptism, the sacramental side. A sacrament is a sign that points to a reality beyond itself. I think I told you the story the time... uh, uh, Corey and I led a college group up to Yosemite National Park, and there are signs everywhere, like, don't feed the bears, don't have food in your car, I mean, they'll totally knock over your car and get the stuff, so, we're walking, and the, you know, the signs are not the bears, right, but they, they warn you about the reality of the bears, so we're hiking down the hill, and there are these tourists from, uh, another country, and they, uh, they just totally have this whole spread out right in the wilderness and up on the hill was a golden bear coming right down toward him so you know we hit our pots and pans together and scared him away but just, so the sign is not the actual bear but it's warning you that there really is a reality of bears there okay and so in the same way the sacrament of baptism when you to dip it yourself in the water it doesn't really it, it's a sign of something greater and baptism points to the reality that those who place their faith in jesus come out of that experience as new creations. That judgment has been taken away from me, away from you, and put on Jesus, and that we have new life in the Spirit. With me there? The word sacrament means mystery. Being baptized is not magical, but it is a mystery in which God's grace is present in a way that it's not at other times. So in, in baptism, we symbolically die to our old way of life in the flesh by going under the water. We share in Jesus' death. And then we break the crest of the water, raised to walk in newness of life, life in the Spirit. And guys, that is really good news because not merely are our sins washed away and judgment taken away, But we actually receive the Spirit so that we can live a life of dekayasune. We can live a life of righteousness. The Spirit bears fruit in us and and gives us those qualities I think that we all desire. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. And you may be saying, hey man, I've been baptized and it was good for a while, but I don't experience that fruit very often. I, I, I'll say that. The reason is because we are also capable of making our own decisions. We can quench the Holy Spirit. So any time that I choose not to trust the Spirit of God in me, I choose to trust my own faculties, when I trust myself or some other alternative to God, I'm not going to experience that spirit life. But friend, that doesn't mean that the spirit is gone in you if you have experienced baptism. That's why we preach the gospel every week. Because there's always, always, always a merciful God who will receive your repentance, your penitence, and and reinvigorate us Give us the ability to actually live lives that he calls us to live. I think that's exciting. In baptism, it's not just a personal thing either. We're actually entering into a new family. The Apostle Paul calls this the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Each of us connected to one another. No one stands alone in baptism. Why? Because we all have a common father the apostle john wrote of jesus saying he came to his own but his own did not receive him this is this is the money line but as many as received him to them he gave the right the authority the power all mixed up into one nice greek word to become children of God. Not to be called children of God, but to become children of God. That initiation right into that family of God, of belonging to the living God and to one another through the Spirit, that initiation is baptism. That's the gift of baptism. So I leave us with two action steps. One, if you've already been baptized, if you've already made that decision to Follow Christ to accept his grace. Remember that you are a new creation. I I, want to challenge you. Maybe your prayer is, God, I have not been trusting in your spirit. You've given me new life and I've been living the old one. Remember your baptism. Two, if you've not been baptized and you want to receive new life, talk to me. Talk to me after this. Talk to me after this. This, this is God's great gift. This is the good news. I receive his forgiveness, not only of all the bad, the bad stuff we do, but we receive new life in the spirit to live a life worth living for. Would you pray with me? Jesus, your humility blows me away. So many times we're not even looking for you. And yet you pursue us in your love. In fact, sometimes we're resistant to you. And yet there you are. Humbling yourself, giving yourself. You have given yourself for us. Jesus, I pray for the grace of knowing um, what the end of our rope looks like. That you would help help me help us not to try and uh, live life in our own strength, but to surrender to you and to know what it is to truly live. Thank you for this gift of new life. Amen.